Well, I brought with me this morning a top 10 list. You know, I'm rather fond of these top 10 lists. And this morning I have the top 10 signs that you're at a redneck wedding. Here they are, the top 10 signs that you're at a redneck wedding. Number 10, the newlyweds leave for the honeymoon in the bed of a pickup truck. Number nine, the bridesmaid dresses are red to hide the barbecue sauce. Number eight, the reception includes a turkey shoot. Number seven, Twinkies are served to the wedding guests. (laughs) Kathy took a picture of the cake at our wedding. Number six, here's how you know you had a redneck wedding. The groom's cake says, roll tide. Good grief. Number five, the wedding party is dressed in camouflage. Yeah. Number four, the wedding cake features mudding in a four-wheel drive. Number three, the newlyweds leave the church in a John Deere. Number two, rather than walk down the aisle, the bride and groom start their new lives together, diving in a mud pit. And then number one, the number one way you know you're at a redneck wedding, the theme of the wedding is, get her done. And if ever there was a redneck wedding... It was the nuptials for Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was a country boy. He was a farmer. His job was growing barley. Ruth was a poor peasant from Moab. They first saw each other in the rural countryside outside of Bethlehem. They met in the fields, no less. They got engaged at a threshing floor, the place where you separate the grain from the husks. This wasn't a Dear John breakup. This was a John Deere romance. When Boaz first saw Ruth in the wheat fields, he asked his foreman, Hey, who's the gorgeous gleaner? It was love at first sight. She was just a day laborer. But Boaz instructs his men to purposely leave handfuls of barley in her path to make her gleaning easier. Boaz went out of his way to bless this young Moabite maiden. He even ordered his men not to touch Ruth. They might be farmer boys, but they better not sow their wild oats with Ruth. It was hands off the girl. And as Ruth gleaned among the stalks, he even had his servants keep an eye on her just to ensure her safety. I guess you could call them benevolent stalkers. I've done this three times now, and you're the first service that laughed. God bless you. (laughs) And at the end of the harvest, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, she decides it's time for Ruth to make a move. You know, in both love and war, sometimes you got to take risks. Ruth doesn't throw herself at Boaz, but she definitely gets in his way. You see, Naomi's the one that's been stalking Boaz. She knows where he's at. He's overseeing the end of the harvest. He'll be staying there at the threshing floor all night to protect his crop. It's time for Ruth to harvest a husband. 
And so Naomi tells her daughter-in-law to wait until Boaz finishes the work. Until he eats and drinks and settles in for the night. Then she should slip up to him and remind him of his obligation. For Boaz was a relative redeemer. Ruth had the right to expect marriage from him. And when Boaz finally gazes into Ruth's eyes and, oh, the love flows and he tells her how pretty she is to him, the bashful Ruth, she just sort of blushes and she whispers, Ah, shucks. You get it? Barley fields, wheat fields, ah, shucks. Well, everything is going so well. Everything is going so well. Let's get ready for a redneck, a redneck wedding. And the theme for the wedding between Boaz and Ruth was just get her done. Boaz, he was an older fella. Ruth had been married before. This is her second trip to the altar. Boaz and Ruth weren't interested in some kind of big ceremony, some kind of matrimonial extravaganza. They just wanted to get her done. But whoa, it isn't that easy. For as we learned last week, no wedding ever goes off without a hitch. I'm just full of them this morning. And there was a hitch in these wedding plans. You see, here's the problem with a redneck wedding. It can get complicated. I mean, you've got to get the father of the bride out of jail so he can walk his daughter down the aisle. Or the groom, is, groom isn't available until deer hunting season's over or or you got to find a church that'll let a hunting dog be the best man. Or you got to work the date around the NASCAR schedule. I mean, there's all kinds of complications with a redneck wedding. The philosophy, just get her done, doesn't always get it done. Well, likewise, Boaz and Ruth had a snag in their wedding plans. Remember, there was a custom in Israel called the relative redeemer. Hebrew culture took family seriously. Siblings had the responsibility to pick each other up when trouble struck. If a man went upside down financially and lost his field, his nearest relative would step in and buy it back. In an agrarian society, a family's fortune and future, their very survival was tied to the land. Thus, if your field was foreclosed on, you would lack the means of feeding your family. For future generations, your family might be out in the streets. A foreclosed family was doomed unless a relative stepped in to redeem. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, it's easy to plop down some cash and pay the debt on a parcel of land. But the responsibility got even more complicated. For if a man died without a son, again, his nearest relative was to step in and marry the widow and sire an heir who would carry on the family name. A genealogy was even more important to a Hebrew than a field. For all Jews dreamed of Messiah being born through their lineage. That meant that if a family died, hope died. It was one less family through which Messiah might come. Thus the law of the relative Redeemer kept hope alive for all Hebrew families. Well, Naomi and Ruth, they thought that Boaz was their man. (laughs) But there was a hiccup. Boaz has some bad news in verse 12. He says, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Ruth's family tree had a limb closer to her than Boaz. Sandwiched right there in the genealogy was another name. 
And when Ruth heard of the man who had first dibs, her heart skipped a beat. She had fallen in love with Boaz, and Boaz loved Ruth. And how do we know? Well, Boaz is going to pursue this man in hopes that he'll forfeit his first position. If he didn't love Ruth, he wouldn't have dropped the, he would have dropped the issue. You know, he wouldn't have been motivated to press forward. It wasn't really his obligation. If he didn't love her, he would have let it drop. But Boaz wants to marry Ruth. It's his motive is not just duty. His motive is love. In fact, Boaz proves his love and commitment to Ruth and her mother-in-law in verse 15. I mean, the jewelry store is closed. He can't go and purchase a big rock, but he's got plenty of barley. And so before Ruth goes home, he loads her up with six ephahs of freshly threshed grain. That's 70 pounds of barley. If you can't buy an engagement ring, you can at least send her home with some multi-grain flour. Of course, you might not be impressed, but remember this is a redneck wedding. Crops work for wedding presents. And Naomi was overjoyed. Here Boaz reveals his masculine shrewdness. Bo knows women. He understands that he's not just wooing a girl, he's also courting her mother. Single men, please pay attention. Can you talk a woman into marrying you, even if her mother doesn't like you? Perhaps. But will you live happily ever after? Absolutely not. Never forget, the mother comes with the wife. And if you create a hostile relationship with your mother-in-law, it will sour every Christmas for you, and every Thanksgiving, and every Easter, and every Mother's Day, and every one of your children's birthdays for the rest of your life. Just warning you. Now, Boaz is no Boaz. No, no, Boaz is no Bozo. Boaz knows the unchanging principles of the cosmos. The big principles. You know what they are? The sun rises in the east. Butter goes on grits. No wife has enough shoes. And life goes better when your mother-in-law likes you. And so Boaz goes to work on Naomi. Verse 16 is where we pick up the story. When she came to her mother-in-law. Now Ruth is coming home from the threshing floor. Naomi said, is that you my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, he being Boaz, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. (laughs) Boaz is a genius. I mean, this is like taking your girl to dinner and then sending her home with an extra dessert. Oh, mom, Reggie just thought you'd like a triple chocolate hot fudge meltdown. Ever been to Applebee's? You need to get out and live a little. And here's the reaction you get from a triple milk. Meltdown. That's the reaction. Your mother-in-law will love it. Verse 18. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. 
For the man will not rest until he has concluded this matter this day. Naomi sees the grain, and she realizes that Boaz means business here. You see, Ruth had taken a big risk to go down to the threshing floor. She's done all that she can now. Any more would be inappropriate. Now the ball is in Boaz's court. And Ruth is asked to do the toughest thing that any woman is ever asked to do. Naomi tells her, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Ruth, chill out. Sit still and trust the man in your life. Wow. No more stepping out for Ruth. No more setting sail. No more taking the bull by the horns. Ruth has done all the maneuvering and manipulating and the controlling of the situation that she can do. It's now time for her to trust her man. And this is the place that a lot of wives never visit. They can't sit still. Ladies, if you were here last week, you're well aware that Ruth was far from complacent or inactive. Passivity was not her problem. She was brave enough to take a risk. I mean, Ruth stepped out and showed some daring initiative. She didn't propose to Boaz, but she proposed that Boaz propose. And for an Oriental woman living in a patriarchal society, that was plenty gutsy. In fact, the impression you get of Ruth is that she was more of the go-getter than Boaz. Maybe she was a firstborn a type A. Boaz was more laid back. Ruth was always trying to make it happen. Boaz was just sort of willing to let life come to him. As they say, opposites attract. Over the years, I can't tell you how many high-strung, highly motivated, success-driven women have come to me complaining that they thought their husband didn't have enough ambition. I'll bet Ruth complained to Naomi, why isn't Boaz more of a leader? But Naomi knows men. She is a wise one, she is. And when she saw the barley, she knew the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Naomi knew that Boaz had it in him. He would lead, perhaps not in the way that Ruth wanted, but in the end, Boaz was man enough to get her done. Ruth needed to sit still, to let go, to turn loose, and to learn to trust her husband. A few months after Kathy and I got married, we had a visitor. A guy I met at the Calvary Chapel Bible College had tracked me down. He said that he had heard that Kathy and I were starting a church. He had received a sizable inheritance, and he wanted to bless us. He would help us with a down payment on a new home. Well, Kathy was overjoyed. At the rate I was headed, it was going to be years before we got into a home. I was happy, but I had some reservations. Things just weren't quite right. I can recall Kathy sort of sitting me down and saying, God wants to bless us. Why are you resisting? We actually went out with a real estate agent to look at new homes. Well, when the guy saw that we'd taken the bait, he decided to reel us in. He had to go to New Orleans for some last-minute paperwork. All he needed was $500. He'd reimburse us when, we got, when he got back. I hesitated. No, it, it just it, it didn't feel right to me. 
And at that time, $500 for us was like $5,000 today. Of course, Kathy had no problem with the $500. She was already counting on the $50,000 down payment. Well, our friend left with our $500. And 30 years later, we're still waiting on him to reimburse us the money. But the lesson learned was worth far more to me in my marriage than $500. Because God taught us a biggie. In the 30 years we've been married, I can honestly say, Kathy has never again questioned my discernment. Now, she voices her opinion, but in the end, she trusts God to lead her family through her husband. Ladies, it can be tough for a wife to sit still and to leave the matter in the hands of a fallen, fallible, error-prone, imperfect, fill-in-the-blank characteristic of your husband. Especially after he's dropped the ball a time or two. But wives... Your husband will never develop into the leader God wants him to be unless he has your permission to lead. Here's how it works. Ladies, understand this. Don't make your support contingent on your husband proving himself. A wife's support is what a husband needs to prove himself. He can't prove himself until he's got it. Pray for him. Encourage him. Provide him your input. There's a lot a wife can do, but there comes a time when you need to sit still. Here's where you have to take another risk and let your husband lead. This is how it's worked out in our marriage. Kathy's confidence in me, it drives me to my knees. She trusts me to listen to God and lead our family, and it causes me to shake in my boots. I humble myself and I open my Bible and I get her opinion and I consult with wise counselors and I research the decision and I examine the pros and cons two or three times and I pray and pray and I pray. In the end, the final decision is mine, but I make it with fear and trepidation because my wife has put her trust in me and I don't want to let her down. Ladies, some of you have control issues. I know you do. You won't let go. And you are undermining your husband's leadership even as you complain that he won't lead. You're creating the very problem you spend so much time grumbling about. Proverbs 14 verse 1 says it best. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. All wives influence their husband, but how? Do you help him man up or do you constantly pull him down? And let me say, I know firsthand how tough a task it is to sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. It is very hard. And and how do I know, you ask? Well, this is the role that each of us plays in our relationship with Jesus. Hey, so much of my life is beyond my control. I'm like Ruth. I have to sit still and trust Jesus that he will not rest until he has concluded the matter. And the man in my life, he's perfect. He's the perfect leader. Jesus is flawless. His judgment is impeccable. His decisions are always spot on. He's never let a follower down ever. And yet I confess, I still find it tough to sit still and trust him. 
I want to manipulate and twist and control and maneuver and apply my own elbow grease. I live as if I can do it better than he can. How arrogant of me. We all would do well to heed the advice of the psalmist. In Psalm 46, verse 10, we're commanded, Be still and know that I am God. You see, here's the truth about life. None of us are truly in control. Life gets out of hand for all of us. And how we handle it produces either fear or faith. Fear grows when you lose your grip, the grip that you're desperately trying to maintain. But when you voluntarily take your hands off and turn loose and trust God, then faith grows. It's all in your approach. Will you grab on or can you sit still? Well, chapter 4 begins. Now Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there. Now the gate of an ancient city was the equivalent of a county courthouse. It was a community center. Merchants would set up shop in the gate area. Groups would gather there. It was where the town judges settled their disputes. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend. Sit down here. He's being very nice, being friendly. He's got a deal to strike. And so he came aside and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He takes ten elders. He he takes ten because it took ten to render a legally binding decision. And that's what he's hoping for here. Notice Boaz is transacting business with a brother, but he wants to get it in writing. He wants to make it legal. Too much is at stake here in the outcome for to rely on a mere handshake. And I think this is a good example for us. Even if you conduct business with another Christian, don't assume that it's all sure to go well. Unexpected stuff happens even to believers. Did you know that? Costs rise. Delays occur. Misunderstandings take place. This is why when I do business, whether it's a Christian or a pagan, I do business. You know, I do it in a business-like manner. I get stuff drawn up. We agree. You know, with something in writing, shortcuts in business turn into long detours. And notice, too, Boaz taking charge. He's being a leader. He insists on his relative to sit down. He signs up ten elders and forms a tribunal. Boaz is stepping up to the plate. Oh, he might have drug his feet when it came to the proposal. He needed a little nudge from Ruthie. But now he's acting like a man. Boaz is overcoming obstacles and he's figuring out a way to get her done. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now here's the first we've heard of this news. Times had gotten so tough, Naomi put her field on the auction block. She'd already passed tight. Past the title. And apparently, this was the first time that the near relative had heard of this too. Now, you got to ask yourself, what kind of a deadbeat brother was this guy? Naomi was probably his cousin, Ruth, a niece. These girls had fallen on hard times, and he doesn't even know. This guy had no sense of any family obligation whatsoever. You'd think he would have at least stopped by to check on them. In fact, you should pay attention to the three types of men represented in this story. First, there was Elimelech. You remember Elimelech from our first week? 
Elimelech was Naomi's husband. He cared about his family. When famine struck Bethlehem, he was proactive. He he saw the trouble on the horizon, and he took matters into his own hands. He researched job opportunities. There were job openings in Moab. He saw that the wages were higher and the house prices were lower in Moab. The problem, though, is that Moab was not where God wanted an Israeli to live. Moab was a pagan land. Elimelech leaned on his own understanding. He trusted in worldly wisdom, not in God's wisdom. He disobeyed and he moved to Moab. And you remember what happened in Moab? Elimelech and his two sons, they died. And this is where the Elimelech approach takes you every time. Death. Guys, trust in your own wisdom and love will die. And faith will die and respect will die. Husband, you'll disappoint your wife and you'll turn her into a bitter old Naomi. If you trust in your own wisdom and disobey God and do it your way. Well, the second man in this book is the nearest brother. This bucko neglected his family completely. Apparently, he lived in his own little world. He was oblivious to the needs of even close relatives. He was irresponsible. At least Elimelech made a move. It was a foolish move, but at least he moved. This guy doesn't move at all. He just doesn't care. He's so wrapped up in his work or he's out on a golf course while Naomi and Ruth are starving to death. Man, I hope you're not like this guy. But thankfully, there's a third man in this story and he gets it right. Boaz is the man. He moves. But in rhythm with God and according to God's will, he relies on God's wisdom, not his own. He does life God's way, not his way. No shortcuts for Boaz. Boaz loved Ruth. You know, he probably could have married or whisk her away and never run the risk of another man stepping up and taking his place. But Bo knows God. And he knows that God's will done God's way in God's timing will never lack God's blessing. And it's God's blessing that Boaz wants more than even life itself, even more than Ruth. And God's law said that someone else had first crack at redeeming Naomi's property and marrying her daughter-in-law. That's why he says to this man in verse 4, I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And Boaz held his breath. But the man said, I will redeem it. Oh, his heart sunk. He was madly in love with Ruth. But it's interesting. He was willing to lose her for God's sake. Boaz had already determined that God's will was best, even if it meant leaving or losing Ruth. Wow, he had confidence in God. But all hope is not lost. Because Boaz now asked the fellow if he's read the fine print. You read that little bitty print at the bottom of the contract? Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Hey, buddy, it's a package deal. You can't redeem the land without the lady. You like that little mother-in-law suite out there behind the house, don't you? Well... 
It comes with a mother-in-law. And the close relative, he thought about it and he said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. In other words, what in the world is my wife going to think? Can you imagine walking into the house that night and shouting, Honey, I'm home, and I brought a friend, and her name is Ruth. She's going to be with us for a while. And I'm sure the conversation just goes downhill from there. I can hear the old boy now. Honey, you remember when you said you needed some help around the house? You remember last night, sweetheart, when you said that you had so much to do you needed four hands rather than two? It's probably not a good way to really break this news to a wife. Thus he said to Boaz, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, or I cannot redeem it. And that is exactly what Boaz was hoping to hear. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Here's how you signed a contract in ancient Israel. Remember, the land was all important in an agrarian society. And since a man's sandal was his point of contact with the ground, his sandal then became a symbol of his ownership. Thus, passing a sandal was the equivalent of transferring a deed. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Now it's official. The land and the lady belongs to Boaz. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, literally, above all, above all of that, Ruth the Moabitess. The wife of Malon, I have acquired as my wife. And I'll bet it didn't take the little birds of Bethlehem long to get the news back to Ruth. Boaz adds, and to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate, you are witnesses this day. Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law of the Liverite is the passage that covers this whole procedure. But Deuteronomy is a bit more explicit on what to do when a man refuses to fulfill his obligation to marry his brother's wife. The wife, the widow, is supposed to take the sandal, but there's more. She takes the sandal and then she spits in his face. That's right. It was a declaration to the town That this was a no good, dirty dog loser who failed to act responsibly toward his brother's widow. Reminds me of the sign that appeared outside the country store. Talk about a redneck wedding. The handwritten sign read, Close September 7, when my one and only daughter marries that sorry, no count, worthless, shiftless John Patterson. Now how's that for an invitation to a wedding? Hey, that's as good as a spit in the face. Well, apparently, Boaz and Ruth decided to forego the spitting in case the threat of public humiliation might scare this old boy into doing the right thing. These two lovebirds never wanted the rival man to follow through. You know, it's interesting, what turned off Naomi's relative is what turned on Boaz. The other guy wanted land. Boaz already had plenty of property. 
He could have cared less about another field. He didn't want real estate. He wanted Ruth. Boaz bought the package. He purchased the field to get the bride. And here's how I want to close this morning. I want to talk to you about Jesus. Because this is how he loves you. This is how much he loves us. Jesus bought a field because he loves the bride. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells a familiar sounding parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In the Garden of Eden, God gave mankind dominion and authority over all his creation. But when Adam sinned, he forfeited that control to Satan. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus? He took him to a mountaintop. And he showed him the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you those kingdoms. Of course, Jesus refused. He worshipped only God. But the Lord never questioned Satan's right to offer him those kingdoms. For Jesus realized that this fallen world, for the moment, belongs to Satan. In John 12, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. God is the original and will be the ultimate owner of all creation. At the start, though, God deeded it to man. But man lost it in a foolish transaction with Satan. And that, my friend, in a nutshell, is why the world we live in today is in such a mess. That's why there's illness and rancor and evil and cancer and tornadoes and riots and injustice. Man was the custodian of paradise and he let it slip through his fingertips. And yet, according to God's law, redemption is always a possibility. A relative redeemer can come and he can buy back. What's been lost can always be redeemed. This is why Jesus joined the human race. He became our relative. On the cross, our sinless brother paid the redemption price to wipe out Satan's claim and to transfer the title deed. Jesus redeemed all of creation back to God. Remember his final words? He says, it is is finished. In the original language, it's one word, tetelestai. It was an accounting term. It meant paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, all that needed to be done for the world to be redeemed to God was completed. Nothing else needs to happen. No religious ritual. No good deed. No moral act. Jesus took care of all the complications just as Boaz did. He did all that was necessary to retrieve a fallen world back to God. But here's why he did it. And here's what you need to know. Jesus didn't just spill his blood to redeem a fallen world for like Boaz. He's a huge landowner. Really huge. He possesses billions and billions of untold worlds. He doesn't need another planet or another star or another galaxy. He has plenty. Jesus bought the land in order to get the lady. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, he sells all that he has to buy the field. And isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He gave it all. He died for us. What more could he give? 
Jesus paid top dollar to redeem this world. Not because he wants another world. But because he wants us. He loves us. We're his treasure. And what is our responsibility? Like Ruth, we should have faith and sit still. God God doesn't ask us to run around like a chicken with our head cut off trying to work up our own righteousness. He wants us to trust him. And I ask, are you relying on Jesus today? Are you trusting him? Are you leaning on him, learning from him? Are you trusting him to work it out in your life? If not, why not? Here's good news. Our Redeemer lives. Jesus is the man who knows how to get her done. He's gotten done our salvation. And he'll get done what needs to be done in your life as well. Can you sit still? Can you trust Jesus? I know you can. I hope you will. Well, next week, the story continues. We're going to have a baby. Next week, right here at Calvary Chapel. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word today. Lord, please continue to work in our hearts. Build up our faith, Lord. This is what we need. I pray for the wives today, Lord, that you'd build up their faith in their husbands. That their husbands would feel that their wives trust them and love them and are supporting them. Lord, I pray for the men in the room today, the husbands in the room, that we won't be an Elimelech and, and take matters into our own hands and try to work out our own solutions. And Neither will we be this other guy who, who just ignored it all and, and was um, afraid to make a move but that we would be like Boaz and that we would accept our responsibilities and that we would be faithful and that we would work hard to make the lives of the people we love better and that we would work out any complications that might interfere with their happiness and that we would just be the kind of men, Lord, that provide for their families. Lord, I pray for us all that we could learn to trust you, Lord, because that's the bottom line. Lord, you're working. You want to work in our hearts. You want to work through our our lives into our families. You want to work through our families into our church. You want to work through our church into our community. You're working today, Lord. Your spirit is moving, and we want to be a part, Lord. And so we pray that you'll help us and build up our faith today. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.